Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a mass shootings continue to plague the world. Some experts say they could actually predict these actions from happening. Do they really have such a plan? We'll talk about that. The Canadians men's national soccer team went on strike on Sunday, forcing a friendly with Panama to be called off. Is there any resolution on the horizon? And Prime Minister Trudeau says China's actions toward Canadian aircraft participating in a UN mission are irresponsible and provocative. Dr. Robert Hewish, an associate professor at Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots of concern about, uh, well, gun control, about mass shootings. Are there a, a bunch of them that goes this past weekend again in the States. And yeah, more fatalities too. And a lot of analysis happening uh, about uh, this, that, and the other thing. And uh, some experts are now suggesting that, look at with the data that they've accumulated, because there've been so many of these things over the last couple of years, they can probably uh, predict not only when the next one might occur, but maybe even who might be the potential perpetrator. Uh, I'm a little skeptical of that, and I wanted to get some clarity on that. So uh, we want to bring our next guest on, who uh, has some pretty strong feelings about that, too. Phil Gursky is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's a distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa Security Program and a former CSIS analyst, and always a welcome guest on this program. Phil, pleasure to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well. Doing well, Bill. How are you today this fine Tuesday morning? Excellent. Uh, this, by the way, there's a story, speaking of Ottawa and such, uh, about a, a liberal backbencher now that has a private member's bill that essentially says he wants CSIS to be more transparent. I'm, I'm not sure, but I want to talk to you about that in a couple of seconds. But first of all, let's get to this idea about predicting uh, attacks like this. Now, I've had this discussion with you, and I think it was in your first or second book. Uh, you're talking about terrorism, not about mass shootings in, in the States or in Canada. But you, you would I think cast some doubt, and I think justifiably so, about how we can actually predict these sorts of things. And and maybe you could walk us through that once again. But you can analyze and and you can look at the you know the characteristics or the circumstances that might make something like this come closer to reality. But you can't predict with any certainty, can you? Well, not at all, Bill. And you know, it's funny we're talking about this because, of course, we have the new Top Gun movie out with Tom Cruise. And yeah. Tom Cruise was in another film many years ago, Bill. You probably remember called Minority Report. Yep. And that was a society where the governments had a system to determine who's going to do bad things well in advance through some kind of remember people floating in pools, I think they were. So a lot of people have done studies on, on mass shootings and said, well, if you look at characteristics, they tend to be young males. They tend to be angry. They tend to be, you know, have problems in their lives, confidence problems, macho problems, whatever. And they go on to therefore become mass shooters. Um, Bill, I was once a teenager. Were you? I, I think I probably had issues with masculinity and, and uh, you know, maturity when I was 16, 17. And I didn't become a mass shooter. So the problem is, is that the characteristics may in fact typify those like the Ovalde shooter and the other ones you alluded to on the weekend in the United States but they overanalyze or they overpredict in a sense. So the bottom line is that, yes, they have those characteristics, but so do millions of other people. It doesn't help you to narrow down out of those millions, what are the onesies and twosies that'll carry a gun into a shopping center or in, in case of Texas into an elementary school. Well, isn't that one of the theories that was floated a, a lot? And, and as you say, uh, the inverse is also a reality. There's a, there's a term for that, 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 you know, all of these shooters were angry young men, but that does not mean all angry young men are going to turn into shooters. Exactly. And it's the same thing with terrorism, Bill. And you're right. When I wrote my first book, The Threat from Within, back in 2015, yes, there are characteristics of people that decide that joining Al-Qaeda or ISIS or whatever is a good idea. But those characteristics are shared by you know hundreds of thousands of other Canadians. And, and the challenge for security services like CSIS and the RCMP is to figure out, well, out of those thousands, which are the ones we really need to worry about? 
who might, you know, put on a suicide vest in a shopping center. And, and, and it isn't an exact science. So, I mean, I, I appreciate the research and I appreciate the data, but I get really nervous, as, as, as you said in the introduction, when people start being predictive in nature, because if you predict the wrong way and you get it wrong, people want to know why you got it wrong. And, and you know, you're only as good as your last failure, right? And, and, and you don't want to be over-targeting or over-investigating people based on characteristics. Well, and, and as you've talked about, I mean, I, I know that there are tracking methods with the five eyes and, and CSIS does what they can here and RCMP. And you may identify, you know, here's, uh, you know, John Doe, uh, who seems to be visiting an awful lot of those sites. Well, you can't arrest them for that. Uh, you know, and is there any way to predict it? Well, yeah, they're going to take this to the next level. And, and I, I can't see that there is because as many as much as there are a lot of similarities with these shooters going all the way back to Columbine, there's still individual cases about what sets them off and what makes them actually do that. And yeah, access to firearms is certainly a factor there. But again, you know, this is this is one of these things where I just don't see that you can be that accurate with any predictions about this to say, you know what, next Tuesday, and it's going to happen in the Midwest someplace, uh, not going to happen. I mean, I just don't see that they can do that. They can't be that, that accurate. I completely agree. And we'll obviously get better, I think, in terms of maybe monitoring people, but that has huge implications for civil society and freedom of expression and freedom of expressing your view. And we certainly found when I was at CSIS Bill that the vast majority of people that came across our radar and whom we looked into on reasonable grounds, it's called reasonable grounds to suspect under Canadian legislation, that when we sort of peeled back the layers, there was no there there. And then you kind of say, okay, fine, did our due diligence, looked at this person, we determined there was no threat, so we move on to the next one because there's, there's no, no, no lack of people you need to take a look at. But no, getting down to that thing that, you know, on, on June the 6th at, at 9.35 a.m., you know, Phil Gersey's going to do this or that in, in somewhere in Hamilton. Uh, no, we're never going to get there. And as I said in my podcast yesterday, Minority Report is fiction for a reason, Bill. That kind of society is not going to be uh, visiting us anytime soon. God help us if it ever should in situations like that. Now, uh, as you've talked about, and I think you mentioned this on the podcast yesterday, uh, what we can do is take preventative measures, uh, like background checks for somebody that wants to buy a, a firearm, for instance. Uh, and that's not being to, done to the extent that it probably could be. And, and there are other things that we can do. But the, as you say, you can't just round up a bunch of people and say, you know, you guys are likely going to kill somebody at some point in the future. So we're just going to put you in jail right now. Uh, that's not the way this works. No, and exactly. I mean, I think most Canadians would think that background checks are reasonable when it comes to firearms, especially automatic weapons like, you know, AR-15s and things like that. I don't think we would push back. I mean, I think our American friends seem to have an issue with this. Or maybe it's not our American friends. Maybe I should spe you know, specify. It's the NRA and people like that that say, you know, we want no regulation whatsoever. Make it a free-for-all. And when you make it a free-for-all, you get situations like the 18-year-old in Uvalde who basically walks into a store, it gets an automatic weapon, no permit required, no background check, and a few days later, he kills all those kids in school. So, you know, Bill, I, I, I'm a big proponent of the reasonable person argument. A reasonable person, when looking at these issues, would conclude that this is not, uh, you know, a, an in-depth and intrusive look into someone's, you know, someone's background. It's a reasonable thing to do before you start granting people access to, to mass weapons like that. And some of the stuff is common sense, isn't it? I mean, you know, if somebody makes an application, I'm looking this over and I said, hey, Phil, this guy here's got three domestic violence convictions. What do you think? I mean, you know, use, use your head sometimes. 
Well, absolutely. And, you know, we, we submit ourselves to all kinds of background checks. I mean, I haven't had a mortgage in a long time, Bill, but before I got a mortgage, I'm pretty sure they did a credit check on me in terms of whether I was, you know, a, a good candidate to pay my mortgage off and not, you know, you know, jet off to Mexico the next day with all the money. So I, I think that as, as Canadians, we, we recognize that authorities and agencies like CSIS and the RCMP and law enforcement, uh, they're here to do a job. And we have to facilitate their job by giving them the tools to do those types of background checks. So, yeah, they, you stop the people with domestic assault records from getting access to weapons because in the worst case scenario, they turn those weapons against their spouses. So no one wants that to happen. So, again, I, I like your this notion that an average person thinks this is OK. And I think most average people would agree with that. Well, the stats I've seen, I mean, even down in the States, is, is I think it's 73% of the people they pulled there, yeah, want background checks. Uh, exactly. There's a small but very vocal group there that doesn't seem to want that sort of thing. So uh, it's a matter of having the political courage to do that. And I guess that's uh, in pretty short supply these days. I want to pivot, if I could, to... Yeah, I want to pivot over to something else here. And I, as I mentioned, there's a liberal backbencher uh, that is uh, introducing a private member's bill. Now, we should you know, preface this by saying 99.9% of private members bill just die in the, the floor. They don't go anywhere. But this guy uh, basically wants to make CSIS more forthcoming in its warrant applications. He says there should be more transparency in the way that CSIS does the information gathering and who they're gathering information about. And, and I kind of see where he's going on this. And he's going to look like, yeah, I'm trying to be responsible here, yada, yada, yada. But is that, is that really the best way for CSIS to do the work with somebody looking over the shoulder and say, what are you calling that guy for? What are you doing there? Yeah, this is an article, Bill, that was in the CBC yesterday. And basically, it's yeah. a liberal backbencher. And, you know, there's been concerns in the past. There's been independent reviews that CSIS may fall short of what's called the duty of candor. Now, so, Basically, to, to explain this to your listeners, like I, I, I was not an investigator. I didn't. I wasn't an affiant to go to court with an affidavit to get a warrant. But I know how it works. And when when CSIS goes to, to that level to prepare a document to say, you know, I need to see Bill Kelly's emails and telephone calls, that is a very intrusive power under Canadian law. And it and judges do not hand out this information like candy. They don't give. They don't grant warrants, basically, unless the service proves that this very very intrusive power is necessary. And, and essentially, this is what happens when investigations continue and we start looking to people and we determine, look, we know a lot about this person, but we really need to find out more because we, we have reasonable grounds to suspect. That's what the legislation says. Reasonable grounds to suspect they're a threat to national security or public safety. So CSIS acknowledged that, you know, maybe there's been issues in the past with sloppy, you know, affidavits, people not doing their homework kind of thing. But what worries me about this, I want to I want to quote from the article, Bill, if that's okay. Um, sure. This MP says, um, as a member of the Muslim community who wears a visible symbol of my faith, and as a mother who's raised two boys, my family and I are no stranger to being looked at with suspicion and when worrying we go over our daily lives. The implication here, Bill, if I, unless I misunderstand this, is that CSIS targets Canadians because they're Muslim, not because they pose a threat to national security. I got big, big issues with that, my friend. Well, because, you know, something I heard the same comments, at least in the same vein, uh, sadly, with the news coverage oh, just the other day, of course, the, the memorial service for that family in London, Ontario, uh, that was murdered about, by murdered by truck, as it is, uh, the one year anniversary of that horrific occasion occurred. And, and a number of the people, uh, many of them Muslims, apparently, were making those same comments that they are targeted, not by authorities, but by everybody or not everybody, but people of all 
walks of life. Uh, and that's that's racist, and it's still occurring, and I understand that totally. But the inference, because I, I got the same read out of this that you did, that she seems to be inferring that law enforcement agencies are targeting uh, people of color, people of, of, of Muslim faith, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, you don't need a private member's bill. I mean, there are existing laws in place right now to, to cover that. No, I can tell you categorically. I mean, you know, does racism exist? Obviously, it exists. And as I say, as a, as a native of London, Ontario, I'm as horrified as you are at what happened a year ago when that guy, you know, ran over the family. And, and what I think is a hate crime, but although he's been charged with terrorism, we can argue that until the cows come home. But look at uh, organizations like CSIS and the RCMP, which have similar powers under legislation to go to court and get a warrant, aren't wasting their time looking at you because of who you are in terms of your background, your ethnicity, your faith, your sexual orientation, whatever. They've determined, because they've been doing investigation, looking into, into, into things, you know, talking to people, maybe getting information from allies, that you do indeed pose a threat. That there's reasonable grounds to suspect, or in the case of law enforcement, reasonable grounds to believe that something has to be done. That's why they go to court to get a warrant, not because of what you wear on your head or the color of your skin. So it really, it bothers me as a former CSIS guy that there's this belief out there that somehow all you have to be is Muslim to warrant um, warrant a warrant, if I can use that term. And that couldn't be further than the truth. These organizations, Bill, are working flat out. They don't have time to waste on frivolous cases that don't really you know, require this level of investigation, this level of intrusion. So I would push back seriously about, about this allegation. And I think it's a fairly serious insinuation that CSIS does this for racist or anti-Muslim reasons. That, that's complete crap in my mind. Well, it's, and I'm not going to say it's apples and oranges, and I don't think we're being naive, you know, because we understand that, you know, within law enforcement agencies, uh, within the banking system, I mean, you, you name any occupation, there are probably racist elements uh, and individuals within those things. And I know there's an investigation going on about the Canadian forces right now and, and you know, the influence of, of white nationalism and things like that. So, the, you know, we're not trying to pretend it's not there. Uh, but as to where it is and how much influence it's got, I think is up for debate. And and, and to the point of, of this private member's bill, if if a CSIS agency or entity uh, went to a judge and said, I, I want you know this material and I want a warrant to be able to get this, well, what's the justification? Well, they're Muslim. I mean, the judge would laugh them out of the chambers. I mean, come on. I mean, that, that, that's, they're, they're not that dumb and naive about that. But it's, it's a, a fine line they're walking here, I guess. But, you know, then you're getting into the realm of, well, can these agencies do their job properly then if, uh, if there's, you know, basic transparency about everything that they do and say? Uh, I, I, that's going to create a whole different set of problems, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I'm okay. You know, you know, the, again, there's independent review found that there was a, you know, a breach of duty or candor. So when you're in a court, you have to put all your cards on the table so the judge can make a decision based on what he or she sees and what the service or the RCMP has collected. That That's the way you do things. And if CSIS has fallen down on duty of candor, then that has to be corrected. And the director of CSIS has acknowledged that. But you're absolutely right. This is ludicrous that, you know, someone would go to court and say, I want to look at so-and-so because of their faith. You know, this is a very long process, Bill. Um, so before the, the affiant even goes to court, so this is an investigator who is, you know, testifies before a judge with an affidavit, there's a very long process internally, and it goes through checks and balances and revisions and all kinds of things, because CSIS doesn't want to go to court and lose. Why would you want to waste your time in that regard? Now does the RCMP. So if there were, in fact, as you said, a particular person who had certain views that were racist or misogynist or anti-whatever, fill in the blank, there's no way in, in God's name that that process would ever get beyond that single person. But if the person tried to, you know, 
put the the affidavit up the line for approval, it would get rejected internally well before it got to a judge. And as you said, the judge would laugh it out of court and it would cast aspersions on CSIS' capabilities and its competency to do its job. So, no, I don't like the allegations. I, I think that and, and unfortunately, in, in you know, with the anniversary of that tragic uh, event, and we all our hearts go out to the families and, and their friends, you know, to raise this now, I mean, that just seems like political opportunism to me. I'm sorry, maybe I'm wrong on this, but we, we can acknowledge the deaths and and you know, make sure that the court the trial goes forward, the man gets his due punishment. But to go from that to say that CSIS is targeting Muslims because they're Muslim, I I got a real problem with that, Bill. Well, and, and I know there's been feedback. I, mean, I know you've, you've seen some of the, uh, the, the coverage on this, too. Uh, and, and, you know, one quote, of course, uh, from somebody with that faith uh, suggesting that, uh, you know, we found again and again that agencies that are theoretically proposed uh, to protect us from terrorist threats do not seem to be there to protect us. Uh, and marginalized communities are, are actively being targeted. And, and again, I, I, that's a troubling statement uh, to me as, as a Canadian citizen, that, that my neighbors uh, may be victimized in situations like that. But for heaven's sakes, if it is happening, uh, report it, because there are agencies that can and should deal with these sorts of things. And as you know, law uh, officials, law officers, whatever, have been called out on this. And cases have been thrown out, and in some cases, charges have been laid in, in, in some of these incidents where that has occurred. It doesn't happen often, but it's not supposed to even happen once. No, and, you know, I mean, for communities to think they're not being protected, I mean, I can kind of get it. Over the past 20 years or so, Bill, the, the priority has been on Islamist terrorism, and, and for, for good reason. You know, in, in the post-9-11 period, we had plots here in Canada. The Toronto 18, you and I have talked about many, many times was a very serious plot back in 06, 05, 06, would have been killed hundreds of people, if not thousands. We had other plots that we interdicted, us and the RCMP, thanks to our investigative work. Yeah, in recent years, the threat has shifted. The The far right, which were originally guys that we looked at in the 90s and couldn't organize a piss up in a bar, to be perfectly honest, are becoming a little more worrisome, a little more lethal. Think of Alexander Bissonnette in Quebec City in, in 2017. So these agencies have adjusted and they have shifted their investigations to look at the threat scenario as it, as it too has shifted. So to say that they're not being protected, I think, again, I think that's that's an unfair allegation. And it doesn't reflect the professionalism of the women and men that work at CSIS and the RCMP who go to work every day, do their investigations based on the information that they have to try to protect Canadians and, to, and try to prevent things from going boom in the night. So I just would hope this, this backbencher MP would do a bit of homework and maybe actually talk to somebody that works in the security service rather than make allegations in Parliament that, you know, that, that the, these organizations are somehow inherently against a certain part of Canadian society, because that's not this, the organization that I work for. Well, and just to finish this off with a little political uh, uh, circumstance here in reality, I, I found it an awful lot of the people that complain, hey, there's never a cop around when you want them. Or, hey, you know, they are the same people that say defund the police and, and defund <laughs> these agencies. Uh, it, if they're going to be cutbacks to the budgets of these agencies and cutbacks to the staffing, of course the service level is not going to be where you want it to be. So, you know, let's let's have a, a, a balanced you know, debate about this as opposed to just throwing accusations out and, and you know, justifying legislation and proposed legislation uh, based on allegations as opposed to facts. Exactly. Bill, we are always damned if we do and damned if we don't. And, you yep. know, I've seen the defund movement in the States and a lot of cities that went ahead and cut police budgets found out a few months later, oh, 
maybe we shouldn't have cut the police budget because crime has skyrocketed in, in its aftermath. So, yeah, again, I, you know, Bill, more information is always better than less information. And I really think this MP should have done some homework before raising the bill. But as you said in the introduction, private members' bills have very, very uh, low re- levels of success. So I don't think this will become legislation any soon. But again, it, it casts aspersions on, on people that are going to work and trying to do their best to protect us. And I think that's a good thing for Canadians. Phil Gursky, as always, Phil, thanks so much for this, and thanks for uh, your uh, proposals and uh, your, your insight into this. I really do appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. We'll talk again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, we were on such a high over the last number of months here because of the incredible play of the men's soccer team and, uh, and their battle, and it was a battle to try to qualify for the World Cup. Well, they did it, and we're looking forward to this, and they were, it was a great attitude here that we had heading into the world cup and there were going to be a couple of friendlies and lo and behold well the one that was supposed to happen this past sunday did not and the uh, the one that's upcoming the friendly is upcoming is questionable because the players are on strike and as you might expect uh, it's well it's about money it usually is so this friendly that uh, was supposed to be played in vancouver is gone right now and there's some questions about what's going on now. The players have issued a statement saying that they refuse to play uh, due to ongoing dispute over compensation. They apologized to the fans. Uh, Canada Soccer held a news conference about that in response. Here's president of uh, Canada Soccer, Nick Bontis. Canada Soccer is very disappointed the men's national team players' decision to refuse to play today. We would like to firstly apologize to all of our Canada Soccer fans and reaffirm our gratitude to you for your continued support. I am sorry that this game did not occur today. Uh, but it's not resolved yet either. Uh, so why is this happening and what are the ramifications of this heading into uh, what is supposed to be one of our you know, happiest moments when it comes to soccer, especially at this level, especially with this country. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Joe Callahan. Joe is, of course, a sports journalist for the Toronto Star and The Guardian and uh, just hopped off a plane. So he's joining us uh, kind of on the go here. Joe, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Bill. How you doing? Yeah, I just uh, just landed in from Vancouver, where uh, I was. I don't know if I've ever done a five day football trip that I didn't get to see a single ball kicked. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, back back in Toronto for now. But um, as I left Vancouver yesterday evening, the men did return to the training field at least. But their fresh statement, which was pretty short compared to the one that they released on Sunday, you know, indicated that yes, we're we're going out training today, but you know, almost to, in effect, just get out of the hotel, that nothing else had changed. But it's, it's, it's been an unholy mess, Bill, you know. I think you've summed up quite well kind of how many different machinations there's been over the last few days. But just to be there on the ground, it was truly bizarre at times. You know, uh, things were happening so on the hop, you know, it was so last minute. The game itself, the Panama game, and you have to remember the Panama game was rescheduled with, six or seven days notice after the absolute debacle of Canada soccer originally booking Iran, you know, so there's just been kind of mess begets mess. And it's, uh, you know, ultimately right now, the people who are losing out the most, well, on Sunday were the fans who had traveled uh, from a lot of, (laughs) a lot of them had traveled a far away. The fans that I spoke to outside BC place on Sunday and John Herdman and his players who you and I have spoken about a lot over these last 12 months, what they achieved. And, you know, we, there's a lot of questions, Bill, obviously, but you know, one of the biggest questions that you ask yourself now is, did they achieve what they achieved in spite of Canada soccer rather than because of Canada soccer? Yeah, it's, uh, 
I guess the bottom line is, Joe, it's a buzzkill because, I mean, you know, we're very <laughs> excited and justifiably so about the way that they played and qualified. Uh, and and I got to tell you, I mean, you know, I, Nick Bonas is a friend of mine. Of course, the head of Canada Soccer, you know, he's from the Hamilton area, from uh, Ancaster. Uh, and he's, you know, he eats, breathes, and, and lives soccer day in and day out. So I mean, he was a great choice for this. But, I mean, we're getting into you know, management versus labor, you know, which is, I guess, the basis for just about every labor disagreement when we get into these things. And it's about money. Uh, and I, I guess, and who do you believe at this stage? I mean, I, I, our colleague Stephen Brunt wrote about this in the SCORE webpage the other day and said, look at, you know, whether this is an oversight, a slight, it's unforgivable. Uh, it never should have got to this point. And as, as Brunt inferred, it's not the players' fault that it got to this point. I mean, we got to have a hard discussion about Canada soccer and their compensation package and a whole bunch of other things that I guess led them to this. Yeah, and I guess, you know, something that I alluded to, and this is, you know, it was never anything that kind of said, look, the women's achievements uh, were different to the men's. But the men's World Cup, the FIFA Men's World Cup, is the biggest sporting event on the planet. And in the last 36 years, certainly since Canada qualified in 1986, it has morphed and mushroomed into even bigger thing, you know? And the Women's World Cup is growing at a great rate too. But ultimately still, the amount of attention, the amount of money involved in a Men's World Cup is significantly larger. And uh, in March, when they qualified, you know, uh, there was a feeling still that kind of Canada soccer and Canada as a country weren't ready for kind of just how big a deal this would be. I chatted with Craig Forrest, the former uh, Canadian Soccer International, the Hall of Fame goalkeeper, uh, last week, and and he made a point that, you know, the guys who are there at Canada Soccer, it, it may not be particularly kind of their fault as such, but it's more his first uh, idea was or inclination was that Canada Soccer itself is understaffed, you know. And uh, if you looked at that press conference on Sunday, it was Nick Bontis joined by Earl Cochran, who is the interim general secretary. Now, right now, for the last six months, Canada Soccer has had. Uh, both the general secretary and deputy general secretary jobs listed as vacant on the website. You know, it's just, it takes an army to do all of the things that are necessary to get a team to a World Cup. And I, I don't know if Canada Soccer have that army in place. Maybe we should just step back if we could for a second, Joe, maybe explain to our listeners uh, exactly what they're talking about. I mean, when you qualify like Canada did this year, and this is all new to us, of course, it's been a long time since we've even been in the tournament. Uh, there's a lot of money involved and, and uh, basically it's who's going to get what, what percentage of this. And uh, now the story I saw uh, was that basically what Soccer Canada was proposing, uh, that the 60% of the money that they're going to get uh, is going to be split equally between the players on the men's and women's team. So in other words, 30 for men, 30 for women, and the rest of it all goes to Soccer Canada. And their justification uh, for that was, yeah, well, we have, we have a lot of debt to pay off, so that's why we need the money. And the players, as I see it, basically are saying... We're the ones that got you here, okay? If it wasn't for the blood, sweat, and tears that we put into this, you wouldn't be getting any money. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be going. So there's there's a, a strong argument on both sides here. Yeah, there is, and and, and one of the you know there's there's so much that uh, you know there's so many recent factors that are swirling here. Obviously, all of these factors come into play since March since they qualified. But a significant one is that in May, our neighbors to the south. Uh, U.S. Soccer si- signed a, a groundbreaking deal with both of their professional team, both of their national teams, should I say, the men and the women. Now, just for comparison, that U.S. Soccer deal will see 90% of World Cup bonuses, which started around 10 million uh, for the men's World Cup, the, the the pool, the bonus pool that will come from FIFA. So about 10 million dollars, give or take, is where it starts. 
90% of the U.S. soccer's 10 million will go to the players, split evenly between men and women. So the U.S. guys essentially are getting 45%, or you know, if you, if you want to even actually break down, 4.5 million split between them. Uh, the Canadian Canada soccer is apparently suggesting it's a, a split of 60% of the players split evenly 30-30. But that would see them taking four times the cut of U.S. soccer. Now, the uh, commercial uh, advantages that U.S. soccer have are significantly greater than Canada soccer. So, yes, there's a lot of factors involved here, you know. Um, the players, <laughs> and, you know, there's another wrinkle here just to keep introducing wrinkles, but the women's team released a statement soon after Canada soccer press conference on Sunday that seemed to be a little bit more conciliatory towards uh, the association and actually took issue with one of the men's suggestions in terms of how the men define pay equity. The women were like, hang on a second, what you're saying is that if we get 30% of our World Cup pool and you get 30% of yours, then that's a, a equality, but that's not what we see as equality, you know? So <laughs> Nick, Nick Bontis spoke about kind of the importance of getting everyone face-to-face and kind of having those meetings, as we understand it, in some of the meeting on Sunday, but... Yeah, it's it's still very much uh, up in the air. Uh, and I guess one of the other factors here too, Joe, because you, you did reference the, the situation with the U.S. women's and men's teams. Uh, we, we can't forget the fact that the women's team actually sued uh, the U, the U.S. governing organization for pay equity, and and I think they did settle, but you know they won, they won the thing because, and and that's only kind of exacerbated the thing. So I mean, you, you, you're going to have to get somebody who's pretty good, proficient in mathematics to be able to figure this thing out here. Uh, and you're right. I mean, the women's team here in Canada might be a little more conciliatory. But thirty percent of ten bucks, as opposed to thirty percent of a hundred bucks, is a huge difference, and so they they've got a beef here too. Yeah, exactly. And then the big, significant added wrinkle in all of this is a decision that was made in two thousand and nineteen by Canada Soccer to basically hand over the keys to all commercial and TV revenue for both national teams to a separate entity called Canada Soccer Business, uh, kind of bizarrely titled company. Canada Soccer Business, which is uh, an entity owned by the owners, a lot of the owners of the Canadian Premier League team. Um, and it was a 10-year contract, which at a kind of time of financial difficulty, which maybe isn't the time to kind of make these kind of decisions, but at a time of financial uh, uncertainty for the association, guaranteed Canada Soccer a minimum of $3 million a year. That was coming from CSB. Um, but now, as both teams in the last 12 months have kind of reached new heights with Olympic gold and for the women, and the men qualifying for Qatar, that $3 million a year, which looked like a great floor, suddenly looks like a ceiling. And so one of the things that the men asked for in their statement was for uh, a review of that uh, 2019 agreement and greater clarity on it. Uh, they've missed one friendly. There's another one scheduled uh, for just a few days from now, in fact. Uh, as, as Nick Bonas talked about yesterday, that's one of the other tragic situations here. If you're not playing, you're not getting ready for the tournament. And, and you know, that could have an impact on their performance in the tournament. Now, I, I know we're a few weeks away from that, just the same. Uh, but do you get the sense that this is something is going to get resolved quickly? Because the longer this drags on, you say, I'm glad they were out on the practice field today, but you gotta be, you got to be competitive. And you're not competitive when you're just running drills. Yeah, you're not. And uh, and there's so many factors, Bill, in terms of the team themselves. Like, you know, John Herdman, what he's been brilliant at is kind of, you know, recruitment, too. He's kind of looked at uh, dual nationals and managed to bring some into the squad, you know, convince them that, you know, they might be eligible to play for Serbia and Canada, but told them that Canada's the place to be. 
And uh, one of those is in the squad now, a 17-year-old who recently made his La Liga debut for Espanyol, Luca Colioso. Um, well, one of the impacts is he didn't get to make his first Canada cap uh, last Sunday because the game was cancelled. But he won, you know, a penny for his thoughts on his first international camp that most of it has been spent holed up in a hotel. Um, so, yeah, for the team, the on-the-field on stuff is definitely impacted. And again... Look, uh, I'm not overly sentimental on these things normally, but it did strike a chord to see so many fans outside the stadium on Sunday, uh, you know, ambling up the hill to BC Place and finding out that there was no game. You know, this team has kind of won over a huge amount of fans in the last 12 months. And your first your first friendly after qualifying for the World Cup should be a party. It should have been a 52,000 sellout. It should have been, you know, Alfonso Davies back in a Canada shirt and here we go mm-hmm. on the guitar. And it's, you know, that opportunity hasn't come. The one thing I would say, Bill, uh, just, just quickly, I know, is that Thursday's game is actually a slightly above a friendly. It's a CONCACAF Nations League match. So oh, okay. it, would signi- it would be significantly more uh, severe an impact if they don't play in that game. Because that's a game that's sanctioned by the continental body, that would lead to big fines, potentially being kicked out of that competition, potentially having to play games behind closed doors. So Thursday, Thursday looms a lot larger than say just Sunday's friendly. But if, if you're not in the same city, how, how can you be face to face for a meeting here? I know Nick Bottas is back home now. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, I don't know if he was on your flight or not, but I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> they, they, they've got to get together on this sooner than later, or this this could develop into a huge tragedy. Yeah, I know Earl Cochran and some of the other Canada soccer guys stayed behind, but uh, that did, uh, I understand if, if if you guys have a close relationship, but, uh, you know, I, I it did strike me that I actually went back to the video, you know, Nick Bond spent two minutes and 21 seconds emphasizing the importance of face-to-face contact, and then by the next morning, he was flying back to Toronto. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's all a little bit kind of peculiar and uh, at times unsavory, and you just, you know, you really hope that there can be some semblance of a solution kind of found, even if it's just, you know what, this is what we're going to do for this World Cup. Then there's going to be some more of a root and branch review come uh, the end of the year after the World Cup. Um, but I know that the men want something greater than that for sure. You know, they, they, they were quite impassioned in their first statement that said they want to change the game here forever. And uh, maybe that requires a, a bit of mess to get there, you know. It does. Well, I know you're going to continue to follow the story. Um by the way, I, as I mentioned, you just got to get off the plane. Uh, one of the reasons you're back in this neck of the woods, of course, is the Canadian Open's coming up this weekend at yeah. St. George's uh, in yep. Etobicoke. And uh, and our our friend Rory is going to defend his title. But it's quite a field, isn't it? It's it's a remarkable field. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys have kind of talked about this, but, you know, the, the, the Saudi breakaway golf tournament looms large. Yeah, yeah Mickelson signed on with them. Mickelson signed on. Dustin Johnson having signed on was a significant blow, given that he, he was RBC's uh, number one ambassador in, in sports. And here we have the RBC Canadian Open, and he decides to chase the Saudi millions. You know, the morals of that are the morals of that. We, we need another 16 minutes, Bill. But the field, <laughs> the field is definitely a super talented field. For me, from my kind of Irish rather than Canadian eyes, certainly having <clears throat> both Rory McIlroy and Shane Lowry there is going to make it interesting. But you know, you look at across the board, there's a lot of great uh, European talent. But what's most exciting for a Canadian fan base is that there is a chunk of really high-performing Canadian players now, led by Corey Connors, of course. But, you know, and Adam, so Adam, Adam Hanwin's played pretty well the last couple of tournaments. Adam Hanwin's been playing great. Um, you know, Mackenzie Hughes has been playing really well. 
Um, and there's, there's younger guys coming again, but I'm literally kind of having just deflamed looking out and the heavens are pouring all over the place. Uh, <laughs> so it's it, going it to stop. Quite... It's going to stop tomorrow. They'll get the practice. Rounds yeah. Told. Yeah. I think the practice rounds today could be uh, pretty quick. And I, yeah. I imagine <laughs> it, 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 it may not be worth my while going to the course today, but we'll go for a look anyway. It's nice to kind of see, them, see how it's set up. But yeah, it should be exciting. And look, <laughs> Because of the COVID implications, Bill, this is the first one since 2019, right? So yeah. Rory is Rory's actually defending a title that he's held for three years. So, yeah, that was um, just around the corner from my house in Hamilton Gulf and Country. That's right. We that remember was, it yeah, well. That was a great tournament. Joe, it's great um, to have you back in this yeah. back, back in this time zone for a few days anyway. Yeah. Uh, we'll <laughs> yeah, see how things go. Uh, stay dry. And we'll talk again soon, okay? We will. Cheers, Bill. Good to talk. You betcha. Joe Callahan, who, of course, is a journalist with the Toronto Star, but also The Guardian, uh, covering international soccer, and, and this week, of course, the Canadian Open. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some questions about uh, what the Chinese government is doing with the uh, harassment, I guess, of uh, Canadian uh, jets that are actually, these are military aircraft, of course, they're involved in UN missions. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that China's actions toward Canadian aircraft that are participating in the UN missions are irresponsible and provocative. Uh, Canada and Australia say that the Chinese planes have engaged in risky maneuvers with their aircraft over the Pacific, putting crews at risk. We are part, as we so often are, of a group of like-minded nations under the aegis of the United Nations to ensure that United Nations sanctions are properly enforced. Canada continues to stand up for the rule of law. We continue to stand up for multilateralism. We continue to stand up uh, for the principles of the UN Charter, and we will continue to. What's going on in the skies? And, and why is China particularly seemingly picking on Canadian aircraft? To do, try to shed some light on this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Robert Hewish. Uh, Dr. Hewish is an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Bill. Thank you so much. Let me ask you about, the, 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 there's been a couple of incidents, and just knowing what we do about military history sometimes, there are probably a lot more that have not been reported or at least uh, categorized in situations like that. Are, are they picking on Canada, or is this happenstance? It's really the UN uh, uh, forces that they seem to be targeting. Well, you know, sometimes the, the expression, when there is doubt, there there is no doubt. And if, if China is trying to deter Canada from observing activities in the Yellow Sea, then there's probably something going on there. And, and I say that because the, the the language we've heard from the Prime Minister and some of the uh, the other international uh, commentators who have come in on it have framed this as China bullying uh, Canada. And there's this track record for most of Justin Trudeau's uh, Prime Ministership where there's been you know very poor relations with, with China for all the reasons that, that, that we know. But to... To use this tactic as a way of, of bullying and intimidation is high risk and can be high cost. There's other ways for, for China to annoy the Canadian government. And this bill, I'm, I'm going to speak to my own expertise on this as someone who Please, yeah. studied North Korean sanctions um, for the last, uh, well, going on now 10 years, and have been able to, to help inform some of the policy decisions around how North Korea uh, gains access to certain resources to to pursue its nuclear proliferation and other matters. One of the things that North Korea has uh, is, is a relation, a working relationship with China. Now, sometimes they become a tense relationship, but usually 
China is there to support North Korea for its various reasons. So one thing that's very common in the Yellow Sea, which again, uh, thinking about the map here, where the Canadian Air Force is, is down, uh, where their planes are coming out of, is out of Okinawa, which is uh, islands south of Japan. And then you have the East China Sea going over to mainland China, and then you follow that north into the Yellow Sea, and that gets you into North Korea territory. What North Korea has been doing for the last five to six years has been using a lot of maritime traffic to get these resources in. All these contraband goods, everything from uh, rocket fuel to parts, sometimes luxury goods as well. And it's been very, very hard to, to track that. And I'm guessing there's something happening right now that, uh, that North Korea doesn't want anyone to see coming in. And if the Canadian planes, the Auroras, were able to to monitor that, the Chinese Air Force coming from uh, you know Nantong or sort of north of Shanghai could have scrambled there to, to try to intimidate that. And with it comes the political benefit of also saying, hey, we're still pushing around Canada. Now, it's my understanding that, that this sort of thing, these reconnaissance flights happen all, all the time. I mean, you know, we don't talk about them because it's just a thing that happens all the time. Uh, for instance, when embargoes are put on, they, they, they're policing it to make sure that they're obeying. And there has always been speculation, hasn't there, Professor, that uh, since these sanctions have been put against North Korea, that they're still doing business with China. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not saying, hey, we're, li- we're taking this to North Korea, but they're doing it. Uh, you know, they're disguising yep. the ships. You know, they're saying, oh, no, these are just buttons we're putting in there and it's rocket fuel. So th- it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile exercise that I guess happens more than we probably know about as, as civilians. But your point is well taken. You know, the fact that the Chinese are getting uh, pretty defensive about this means that maybe there's something, uh, you know, heavy going on here that, that we should hear about. Well, let me uh, just give you a sense of how this, this sort of works, is that uh, when North Korea started to pursue its, its rocket programs uh, more aggressively around 2014, a lot of experts thought that all the goods and hardware were coming in from China. Uh, well, there's only so many bridges between North Korea and China, and only so many of those bridges actually worked uh, well enough to get some of the supplies in. Where most of the uh, sort of the housing for the rockets and some of the big, big materials were coming in were actually via sea either on the, the west coast of, of China, which is very active, that's on the Yellow Sea, or on the east coast in some parts in, in the Sea of Japan. So how they were doing it was actually pretty brazen at the beginning. They were just they were flying around their own uh, ships and flags. But as those were starting to be targeted, the, the game works like this, where you have a North Korean ship that flies a flag of another country. Uh, could be, well, for a while there, they were using countries in, in West Africa and, and East Africa, sometimes South Pacific nations. And then that ship is then uh, managed and operated in a third country, like Singapore or sometimes in Hong Kong. And then it's insured, usually through a legitimate insurance uh, uh, operator. And then from there, the ship looks like it's not North Korean, but yet it goes, uh, it's basically operating as such. And what these ships tend to do is they go and they loiter around busy ports. Uh, they don't behave in normal maritime practices. Ships don't make money if they're stalled at sea. And they do a lot of sea-to-sea offloading and trafficking. And that's where uh, our military is trying to, to do the surveillance, both through submarines and through these Aurora aircraft, to try to observe that action where all this illegal activity happens. And uh, the, the way to sort of catch up with these guys is to, to keep an eye on the seas through the actual military presence, but also there's there's tracking software that civilians can even use to keep an eye. 
And you'll see some funny behavior around North Korean waters. Ships that say that they've come from one port, they're going to another. None of it is true. Uh, and, and right now there's actually a ship in the Yellow Sea called the Katharina Olden that says it came from Vancouver. It's on its way to Dandong, but it's actually just loitering around uh, the port of Nampo, which is a North Korean port. So all that to say, Bill, is there's a lot of shady business going on out there and the actions of trying to find the surveillance for this is an important first step and then trying to enforce it afterwards is another important step that's actually very difficult to pursue. But even if you have any, any intention of pursuing it, the first thing is you have to have proof. Uh, it was one of these uh, missions way back in, it was in 1962, I think, wasn't it, Professor? Uh, where U.S. pilots said, hey, wait a second, there's some missiles going to Cuba here. Uh, yep. we, we should look into that. I mean, so it, this can pay off and be beneficial to these people that are doing this. Uh, but this is a bit of a different circumstance because, as you say, this is covert. And and we've had, I think you and I had this discussion a couple of years ago, but uh, the concern that it seemed as if a lot of the stuff, as you said, is actually happening out in the ocean uh where one ship will they're not going to port uh you know they'll transfer the goods uh, the contraband i guess to another ship uh that, that this appears to be legitimate so uh, so this has been going on for some time if in fact they do say hey we've got evidence of this wh where do they go what do they do well this is what's really tricky it depends what they're actually after so one of the most successful intercepts actually took place when uh, north korea uh, purchased a missile out of cuba and uh, buried it in the bottom of a ship under a whole lot of sugar. And uh, the, 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 uh, the driver of the boat decided to take it through the Panama Canal. And it was actually the shady behavior of that boat actually triggered a response from drug enforcement authorities in the U.S. saying this boat isn't behaving correctly. And as a result, there was an interception on the Pacific side of the Panama Canal that wound up with you know pistols coming out and the whole thing. Where a lot of the sanctions enforcement is coming right now is actually dependent on the private sector. And that's actually what we're seeing in the Russian case right now with confiscating planes and, and, and yachts of the oligarchs there is that the governments can put the measures in place to try to stop money from flowing or stop goods. But it ultimately comes down to the ports, the airports and the banks and even insurance companies to say, oh, we have to enforce this now. And with shipping, it's really tricky because the, the time it takes, and North Korea has proven this works, to set up uh, a fake shell company in Singapore, send a ship from, could be South Korea, say it's going to China, stops in North Korea, and then dissolve the company and money's exchanged and it's on its way it can just be a matter of hours. So it's really, really difficult to try to enforce this. But what is important to remember is that why this is valuable is that these networks still operate within existing structures of, of global capital. And if you're able to identify the insurers, the banks, and where the money's moving, you can stop these guys. And that was actually what happened in 20, uh, 2016, 2017, that these methods worked well enough to basically stop the supply of rocket fuel into North Korea for about, oh, nine to ten months. And that sort of put their, their, their rocket uh, program on hold for a bit. I guess what exacerbates the situation here is the uh, pretty much expansionist, I guess, uh, attitude the Chinese have towards this part of the world, don't they? They've essentially uh, laid a, a, a drawn, I guess, an imaginary line here and said, "Look, at this is all ours—the waters, the, the the islands, all of this. You know, uh, this this is Chinese property. Stay out, basically. It's it's a big keep out sign that they've got here, uh, which I guess is going to cause more conflict." Well, exactly. And I'm glad you touched on that, Bill, because I know a lot of a lot of the global politics is, is turning to to Ukraine and Russia, which is which is critical at the moment. 
But what a lot of countries in the Pacific have been trying to raise the alarm bell for, for years now is the expansion of Chinese uh, naval influence, and in some cases, air force influence into the Pacific through the East China Sea. Now, that is particularly important hotspot because in the East China Sea, you've got Taiwan there, you've got uh, Okinawa, where there's U.S. military presence, the Marines are stationed there. You also have Japan and South Korea all there. And what we're seeing is continued expansion of Chinese naval pressure into the deep Pacific. So as far away as Fiji and some of the atoll nations like uh, Kiribati, uh, Tonga, um, and others are there like they're there these are the countries that are now dealing with china to say yes you can use our ports and you can station your equipment there so there's there's this movement that other countries like the philippines have said we we cannot survive uh well with our own fishing and our own strategic interests if china keeps pushing further into the pacific and that's that's the other geopolitical chessboard that's underway right now that that many people i think in north america are forgetting about is there concern here that this could escalate? Yes. I mean, anytime that you've got a situation where you have aircraft buzzing other aircraft or you have uh, fighter jets from China that have weapons loaded that are uh, doing an approach towards a naval aircraft, which the Philippines have been complaining about for quite some time or, or other vessels just sort of in the area being belligerent, there's always room for accidents and error. And, and when one of those... Uh, occurrences take place the problem is is that diplomacy sometimes is not enough to cool it down and say oops we made a mistake so this sort of belligerence and bullying is something that china has been getting away with for say 10 years past even a bit before and and right now um, trying to recover from some of the bruising the political bruising inside uh, Mr. Xi is, is looking for ways to make himself look, look great again, to use that term. Um, the, the Olympics were, were, they occurred, that was supposed to be China's greatest uh, time and greatest year. Uh, COVID broke out all over. They've been uh, facing serious lockdowns in the early part of the year in Shanghai, where they were brutal and, and media coming out about heavy-handed police repression. Needless to say, uh, China's not politically unified as much as Mr. Xi thought it was at the end of 2021. So stunts like this could pay off, but I think also the reason this this hostility is there is there is a reason behind it, and that's to try to make it more difficult for people to really observe what's going in and out of uh, North Korea and China trade. Yeah, because what comes to mind here, I mean, as you mentioned, this is a very complicated circumstance. Uh, if there was a accident, as you mentioned, uh, with a Canadian player or American. I mean, you, does does the NATO thing come into play here? Attack on one is attack all, uh, and is that going to you know escalate things in this situation? Are there more things that have gone on there that we don't know about? Uh, I'm thinking of that scene of the the first Top Gun movie, you know, where the, there's a Russian interaction with the Tom Cruise and and those guys, yep. and the guy said this, this is never going to be reported. Don't worry about it, uh, yeah. because they don't want it to escalate. So I mean, there's 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 politics going on here, but there's some gamesmanship going on here as well. Yep, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. And the thing is with, with China, um, as we've, we've seen in the past with economic measures as well, is that they tend to express or want to express their strength through uh, proxy wars. So instead of you know, saying we've got a problem with how the U.S. is treating you know, our executives at Huawei or their steel embargoes or whatever's going on that's coming out of the U.S., don't directly intimidate the U.S., intimidate the U.S. allies which is why Australia has also been complaining about a lot of 
buzzing by Chinese aircraft as well uh, in the Pacific. So the idea is if there was an, an incident to take place, it would be between China and Canada, China and Australia, uh, not with the US. And that's where the pressure point comes because the US has made a guarantee to Japan, to Taiwan, to say that if there ever was a military aggression in that region that the US Navy would respond. So it's a big bluff card to say, you know, if an accident were to occur, would the US respond or would they not? It's it's risky business. It's not a smart way of dealing with, with geopolitics in this way. It's high risk and, and high consequence if it was if it was to unfold. Well, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the focus is on Europe right now, and justifiably so, but, uh, but keep an eye on this too. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program to add some clarity to this. Thanks so much, Professor. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks again. You betcha. That's uh, Dr. Robert Hewish from Dalhousie University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.